Welcome to The Partner Pod. I'm Haneke, your host, ready to bring you insight and inspiration from The Partner Network. Today, I'm joined by the wonderful Laura Tajada, who originally came from being an external recruiter working for the likes of Microsoft and other partners. Today, she works as head of people for Extrinsica, a global Microsoft cloud partner, helping them create a recruitment plan to scale over the next three years. Her remit is also to reduce recruitment costs, attract top technical talent and increase retention and well-being. She is a very, very busy person because she's also consults with other companies on scale-up strategies and founded a startup school, which is a development group of 180 startup founders. So welcome, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. I don't feel like I need to say anything now, Hannah, because you've covered it all. So, <laughs> but, um, but I'm good. It's definitely, I mean, I'm going to be very British here and talk about the weather, but it's definitely cooled down a lot. <laughs> I know. I know. What happened to the Sunday sun that I was getting a little bit red and a nice warm glow? Now I've got the heating yeah. on again. So there you go. I've been in a bikini like a week ago, and now I've got all the heating on and everything and the fire going and stuff. <laughs> Well, talking about fire and hotting up, actually, that's a great kind yeah. of link in because the war for talent is certainly hotting up again, isn't it? What's your experience of that in the market? I mean, at the moment, if you snooze, you lose, basically. Um, there's some really good talent out there. And, and what's lovely at the moment is you can almost cherry pick talent. If you're offering the right salaries and you're offering the right progression path and you've got something that's going to really entice and excite someone. But soon as you I find at the moment as soon as you contact somebody and you plant that seed even if they're not looking they're possibly looking um you need to move quickly on them because if they put you know update the LinkedIn profile put the CV out there I mean most of them it's LinkedIn profile now um they're going to be seen by other other recruiters other Microsoft partners other companies and um you're going to miss out um and kick yourself for it so uh so yeah it's a very competitive time right now for good talent yeah, it it is. And, and and that's why why I really wanted to invite you on, because, you know, I think it's really important that, you know, partners really have a, a strategy now to win that war. And how are they going to attract, you know, talent over their competitors? You know, what, what kind of advice or thoughts have you got for them on that? So um, what I would say, first of all, is a lot of companies, they'll sort of see an opening or they'll get some investment and they'll be like, right, OK, well, we need we need so many people in our sales team. We need this. We need that. We need managers, et cetera. Um, I think every single role that you recruit for a company, you, you want to think about, you know, what are what are the outcomes um, for that role? Sort of what what do we actually want them achieving within 12 months of being with the company? Um, you know, how much save, how much time will they be? How many leads will they be attracting if they're in marketing? How many, how many new clients, how many sales, et cetera. So having a clear outcome for that, that role in mind. Um, and then as part of the interview process um, and as part of the actual talent attraction piece, it's, it's making clear like what they're actually, that it's making it clear to the person that they're going to be massively adding value to your business because people like to be indispensable they like to add value that's that's a big attraction piece in itself um but then they've also got a really clear path ahead of them as to okay well this is what i need to achieve within three months this is what i need to achieve within six months 12 months um, they can even help create that strategy as part of their interview um and then that can be easily measured by any management or mentors within the company so uh, when they join i think that's where a lot of companies go wrong they just hire them in and that's great you can stick a load of cards on top of a, a, a deck but 
but they're going to slip out if they don't have a clear plan and structure ahead of them. So um, I think that's the first thing I'd say. And then the other thing is having a clear roadmap. So, you know, it's very difficult for scale ups to get this right. And, and it's a constant work in progress. I'm not saying I know the answers to all of it, but, um, you know, do you bring in the seniors first? without any teams to manage or do you bring in the juniors without any management and it's sort of trying to gradually build that pyramid of um well not pyramid but I suppose it's sort of this shape of you know leadership team with their teams underneath them and as many scale-ups and startups will know you'll you'll bring in um team members and they might not have a manager to begin with and they have to be resourceful or you'll bring in a leader who has to sort of do what their team would would deliver to begin with until they can actually hire them in. Yeah, getting getting that order of priority is is so key, isn't it? We had that a situation recently where we're, we're recruiting for four or five roles, and there's a lead role there. And, and 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 actually, you know, in hindsight, really, we should have gone to market on that lead role first. Not everything all at all at the same time, although they're all kind of like we need them. We need them yesterday. Um, but actually focusing on the priority first, because then you end up losing people in the other processes if you can't hire them until that lead is on board. So um, that makes sense. And and I think what you said about outcome is is key because, you know, if you're going to attract talent, it, it's not just about putting a job spec in in front of them, is it? And, you know, talking them through the the organization. I mean, that's important. But, yeah, what what value can they be adding in that first 12 months? What does that really look like? And I think, you know, as well as the challenges, I think candidates want to know you know what what challenges there might be as well yeah yeah I think making it like you want to set people up to succeed when they come in and join your business um and I think everyone will come in with fire in their bellies um you know they're keen they're bought in they're like you know they, they really want to be a part of the vision of the company but it's actually how do you keep that fire alive that's what I think all management needs to be thinking all of the time and they forget about it they're like oh yeah great we've filled that role now actually how do you get the most out of that person and how do you keep that fire alive in them? Because if it goes out, there's, they'll either jump ship or even worse, they'll stay. <laughs> they don't want someone staying because it's a safe bet without any fire in their belly because that's infectious. And it's almost like you'll have a load of people in the team, a load of heroes ready to go. One turns grey, loses the fire, and it's almost like they infect all the others. And so you need to learn, like, work out how do you keep that fire in their bellies. And part of that is you know, their progression path um, and having that those clear defined outcomes for their role. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, and I, there's a lot of emphasis on obviously bringing in talent and then also, you know, the, this remote onboarding piece that everybody's having to get to, to grips with. Um, but it's not just about onboarding. Is it? It, it is about what happens after that point. And, you know, a lovely swag pack arriving on day one is lovely. And you see the pictures all over social media. And then I always wonder, well, OK, so, you know, what's going to happen after that point? Um, how do we keep them engaged? But, yeah, how do we light the fire and keep that fire really, really alight? Yeah. Um, what what advice have you got for people on on how to do that in your experience? So keeping the fire alight is you, you really need to. So first of all, it's management. Um, a lot of um, companies will bring in managers or will promote managers because they've been there for a certain amount of time. Whereas actually, management is a skill set in itself. I personally would not be a good manager. For example, you need to be very patient, which I'm not, <laughs> um, and you need to know what makes people tick and how you can best support people and actually see the value in in people and actually you know care for them and be there for them. The best managers I've had have had those qualities. Um, whereas most managers are extremely busy, they've also got their own day job and 
they just don't have patience to manage. So the first thing is having really good supportive managers who can help that person on their progression journey within your business. Um, then it's actually empowering them. So a lot of businesses' decisions are made from the top down, made by leadership teams and rolled out. And no one really, it's like everyone being on a roller coaster. They don't know which direction it's going in and, and uh, you know, they're just on, on the ride. Whereas if they actually know what's happening next, they know there's going to be a dip. They know they're going to go up a, 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 you know, a hill or they're going to go around type corner or loop the loop, whatever. Um, then they're going to be prepared for it and they're going to be expecting it and, and they're going to do all they can to help on that ride. So I think that's something that's really clear now is empowering your teams, you know, having clear communication with them and making sure that they actually um, are part of the company vision and part of the company direction. So it's almost creating ideas for, for the company vision from the bottom upwards. So getting your juniors, you know, what do you think? Getting them part of these, you know, part of these meetings, these innovation meetings. How can we improve? How can we improve sales? How can we, um, you know, how can we get more um, visibility in marketing and asking people who don't just work in the marketing department, but really empowering everyone's skill sets. Um, and uh, and yeah, with, with that, you then can create sideline projects, which they can do on the side of their job. Most people, because they want to grow and they want to develop, they'll be happy to do a sideline project. So it could be something silly like, you know, go to an event or I want you to go and research this or whatever. And it's just another way where you're actually trusting them and empowering them. Um, you're enabling them to use their skill sets. And some of them might have skill sets they're really not using in their jobs. And when people are doing, using skill sets they're good at, they, they enjoy what they do. So it's another way to keep that fire going. Yeah. And then as a company, you're building a, a learning culture. So or a learned culture, they call it um, constantly developing, evolving, innovating. Um, whereas companies, I think they use this word innovation so much, but they, they don't. They're too scared of failure and they're too interested in perfection. You can't ever get good unless you fail. So that's something that I think would, would help in keeping that fire in people's bellies, really. So I've gone off on one there. <laughs> um, like keeping the, the clear communication and letting them be a part of big business decisions. Yeah. Do, do you find that the culture of, um, you know, might, uh, a partner and I don't want to sort of generalize and put them all together in one camp. But do, do, do you see the culture being different working for a partner than than, you know, perhaps um, the end clients that you've worked for? Because I, I, I see there is a difference, isn't there? Working for a consultancy versus, you know, working at the end client and the culture you know, can be different. I don't know. Do, do you yeah. see that? I mean, um, I think. As a partner, you can't be um, in regards to the culture or in regards to more the leadership, because I suppose the leadership helps to create the culture. Um, you can't be as uh, freestyle as a non-Microsoft partner. Um, Non-Microsoft partner, they can they can be rebellious. They can do things as they want. You know, they can they can be a bit risky on social media, etc. Whereas I think once you've got that label, Microsoft um you can't be as rebellious as some other organizations especially you know tech startups some of them are very rebellious in a way that they they do their marketing campaigns etc um and it can become a bit more formal and actually formal isn't what attracts you know um isn't what attracts sales and business um it's, it's actually people like to work with people and i think a lot of the time um the microsoft partners i've worked with can sometimes almost be a little bit too professional um but that is changing as well as it's changing at even, you know, Microsoft and the Microsoft events have been to, I think now it's very much emphasized on people, you know, humans work with humans. 
And that's all changing across, you know, the marketing campaigns that are going out there. The webinars, thank God, are becoming less, um, what's the right word, stiff. <laughs> um, you know, just not, and, and, and also I think it's, uh, um, because Microsoft Partners are very much, um, it's all about technical ability and delivering the best, you know, technical outcomes for businesses and the best technical solutions. Sometimes because they're run generally by technical people, um, the lingo can become extremely technical. <laughs> um, so actually the people you're trying to help who are the founders of businesses, you have no idea really even what the cloud is. I mean, it's something that you store some photographs from your phone on in the cloud or whatever. They don't know what it is. They don't really care. They might be having issues like security issues and they might be having speed connection issues with their staff that work remotely or they might have, you know, company, their staff are using remote desktop and things like that. And I think the, the way they use their lingo, it doesn't translate to non-techies, whereas actually um, all Microsoft partners, we should all be using lingo that translates to Betty, who has just lost connection on her Word document because she's using, you know, um, remote um desktop or uh or michael who's suffering with security for his business um because now there's more people hacking into businesses um hacking into their crm systems and things because it's all held on servers in his utility room or whatever <laughs> or in a utility <laughs> office but um but yeah i mean it's it's sort of translating it into why is the cloud relevant and but actually translating to language that we understand when we're stressed and when we're not technical yeah so that's the other I found I think is sometimes we can be a little bit Microsoft wants a little bit too technical that's just making me think you know that that is often the challenge uh, you know we find is you know getting people with the the, the the strong technical ability to perform in whatever role it is but there's always that element of external stakeholder management whether that's um requirement gathering or proof of concept whatever and to get that mix um of consultancy skills and being able to explain things clearly yeah. and simply but then also being able to go right down deep into the technical and deliver or build something yeah not always easy to find so is it? a combination really hard because i think once you get good at something um the, the lingo becomes normal and you start to forget what it was like when you didn't know what that lingo meant um, and, and it's the same companies can become so complex in their message and their branding. And it's actually really simplifying that right down. Like, what is the issue that's going on um, for these people that you're serving right now? Um, and what solution can you put in place that makes sense? Um, what's the outcome? So usually it's, you know, they're going to save money. They're going to save time. Processes are going to be easier. They're going to have automation. They're going to have happier staff, higher retention, you know, sort of. There's, there's so much in regards to the outcomes that you can give through technology, but we just mix it all up with our lingo. As a partner, if you've got a shortness of people that are technically brilliant, but then they, you know, on first meeting, maybe don't have that skill of explaining things in that way. Do, do you think that's trainable? Because we're not going to have the pick of the talent. It is going to be difficult. So therefore, there has to be a compromise somewhere. I would say it is it is trainable it's it's a constant debate actually as to whether these it's an it's a soft skill um and whether these soft skills are trainable but i think if you you you, you can put some form of training in place to teach people where others are at it's so easy to as long as you have the constant reminders of who your audience are that you're actually speaking to um what knowledge they have and almost you could almost create translations for the words that you use and translations for the solutions that you provide 
into everyday language that everyone is going to understand. I think that's something that anyone could learn if you could almost like, you know, having a translation up on the board for all your staff to learn. So when they are speaking to customers, they're using that and they're using those examples. Um, yeah, I think that's a great tip. Really, really good. Simple, simple tip. Yeah. Um, we kind of mentioned it earlier in the beginning, but we were going to talk about um, common recruitment mistakes, weren't we, that, that we see being made? And we you know, mentioned the one about sort of prioritising and then having the, um, the strategy. What, what, what else would you see that people are doing that maybe not setting themselves up for success to hire good talent? So um, setting yourself up for success, I would say, is first of all, depends on the level of, of hires you're planning to make and how quickly you're planning to make them. If you're planning to make a load of hires within two years and then stop for a while or just trickle on. Um, there'd be no point in a lot of companies will bring in five internal recruiters to do that on permanent salaries. And then after two years, once that big scale up has been done, they're going to have a load of recruiters. They've got to try and work out what to do with them. And, you know, all this additional expense of, of them staying on board or, or trying to work out how to end their roles. Um, so I've seen that happen quite a lot of times. People bring in big internal teams. Um, also, um, this um, aspect of um, recruitment whores. Um, <laughs> I use. So you'll get a, a, a technical business and I've worked with many of them. Um, where they will work with every single recruiter that gets in contact, pretty much, you know, they'll have at least 20 recruiters on the books and uh, and they'll give them a role and they'll think that means they're going to get access to the best talent. Whereas actually what that does is it means you've got recruiters who aren't really, you know, um, they don't really value you because you don't value them. They know they're one of many. Um, they'll be fighting over candidates on job boards candidates will be speaking to six or seven of the same recruiters which makes the company look bad because if you think every single external recruiter you use is representing your business brand so you really want someone who's going to respect the brand understand the company and effectively be a right arm of your business or an extension of your business um so whereas if you've got you know 20 other recruiters going out there with a with the job spec getting it wrong um it also creates a massive admin task because you'll get loads, loads of cvs and candidates who are incorrect so that's really the main thing I've seen is this recruitment whoring. <laughs> um, you know, they just they, they just work with everybody. Whereas the best way I find to to work is to to bring in recruiters who specialize within an area in your business. Um, so let's say it's engineering or let's say it's sales or it's marketing who already have a talent pool that they, they are well connected with and they're well respected for that area. And then they will basically um, you, you'll choose one, maybe two. Um, recruiters and give them an element of exclusivity because if you give them exclusivity they will give you exclusivity um, and they will value um, you as a client that you can even bring in a recruiter on a retained basis um, or completely work ex exclusively recruiter um, especially recruiters got good branding for example and good a good sort of marketing or, or social media presence um, and they then can literally become an extension of your business and even um, have their own email under your business and have you know, your business on their LinkedIn profile. And that obviously is the dream for the recruiter because recruiters love to work like that as well as, you know, for the company because they've got this very high-end recruiter that you wouldn't be able to afford to recruit internally. I mean, rec good recruiters are always on over six-figure salaries. Um, if they're self-employed, they're on the millions. <laughs> um, uh, good recruiters. So, um, so yeah, you, you, you'd be very lucky to have someone of that level exclusively representing you as a business. So that that is the... The main way I, you know, I would rather um, set up for a company to work, but it depends, depends what they need, I guess. Um, it depends how steep and sharp the recruitment's going to be. 
in the footfall, if they need an RPO in place, if they need a contract recruiter, if they need an exclusive recruiter or, you know, but the, the main thing I would say is, is not going out to 20 odd recruiters out there. Um, it just doesn't look good for your brand at all. And you'll end up with a massive admin task and wishing that you never work with recruiters ever again. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think it's about getting some really good advice before you decide on yeah who you're going to partner with, you know, yeah. what partner you need, or partners, um, and, and building a plan around that. And you know the conversation you and I are having are the com- is a conversation that happened in recruitment twenty odd years when I first started, and it, there's still the same argument, there's still the same benefits of working in this way. But yeah, we're twenty odd years on, and 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 still you know um, not everybody understands it. But I think that is is changing and it it's not just about the factors you mentioned it's about the um the impressions of the candidate isn't it yeah. because if a candidate get, gets called four times by you know different recruiters i don't think it represents a great first impression and also when you're an extension of that business and the candidate said that to me the other day is it's just like talking to your client yeah. that's because i know them so well yeah. because they've taken this all, all of the time yeah. you know and the buy-in is, is instant yeah. um, which is critical when you're headhunting yeah. and trying to attract passengers talent definitely that's I mean that's the other thing when you're saying passive talent um that's the thing I make clear to my what I noticed so it's a big learning curve for me working with external recruiters or coming from external recruitment background myself it was interesting to see how how everybody works differently and I found some I would give them you know all the information I could so that's the first thing is giving them all the information you know why the role has come about what sort of companies we'd want them to come from, what size companies we want them to come from, um, you know, what kind of support network they would have around them. So, for example, salespeople, sometimes a salesperson is a small cog of a very big sales process. If you're a small company, you need a salesperson who can do a bit of everything. Um, so it's, you know, making sure the recruiter understands all of those things um, and, and even things like, you know, don't want them want to have been with the company for at least a couple of years before they're jumping between jobs and just to make it super clear so they've got the requisite in front of them, but then giving them the time to find those people because you're not just going to find them on job boards. And um, People on job boards, that's great, and there's some really good talent on job boards right now, but they will be speaking to, you know, good people. We're speaking to, what, eight to 20 other companies? Um, whereas the ones that if you give them time to find passive talent, they will, to begin with, as long as you move quickly, they'll only be speaking to you. Um, so if you actually give recruiters, I'll give recruiters three weeks and I'll set a requisite of, you know, three CVs. Sorry, not three weeks, two weeks. Give them two weeks to find someone headhunting. And I'll say, I want passive talent from these sorts of businesses. And I want your three top candidates, which stops me from getting, because otherwise you'll get three CVs here, four CVs there, six CVs there. Whereas I'd rather they look at all the candidates at the end of the two weeks and go, okay, these are the top ones. We're going to pick these three, you know, and, and get it spot on, which saves me a lot of time in admin, a lot of feedback time going back and forth. And generally means I get really good talent that isn't, you know, isn't speaking to, to to God knows how many other companies at the same time. Um, so, so yeah, that's that's how I've preferred working with recruiters. Um, so it's good. So, yeah, um, and we're now getting into the the start of the process, aren't we? You know, I think sometimes organisations think the process is that first interaction they will have with a candidate. Well, actually, it isn't. It's the first interaction your partner has, um, which we've covered. But what what would you say is a really good process um the number of steps and what the outcome of those steps would be that would be really useful to hear from your perspective i think yeah so selecting the candidate um i think you want to have a process that's not too long um i've worked with many companies who will have like an eight-step interview process 
Um, make sure you don't start speaking to candidates before you're ready to hire. If you start speaking to them at the end of the day, you've planted the seed. They're going to start looking at other businesses and you're potentially going to lose them. I mean, it is nice warming someone up for a while. You, you, you can do that, but you do have the risk of losing them once you've planted that seed. So it's sort of moving whilst the iron's hot, et cetera. But, um, but yeah, I would say as a as a process, um, as soon as you get that candidate through, so let's say you get the top three candidates after the, the two weeks, or, or even if we found them ourselves and I've headhunted them myself, it's then a case of having a clear defined process for the candidate. You know, you'll have um, an interview within three days with a hiring manager, which would just be a discovery call, which is where you both can find out whether you actually want to work with each other and, and get to know each other, which I think should be super informal. Because once once it's informal, you get the candidate to relax, you get the best out of that candidate, you get to actually know that person, find out if they're a culture fit. And, and you know, it's a no bullshit approach, I guess. You sort of both actually know what each other wants and what the outcomes are um, in place for the role as well as what outcomes they want for their future. Um, so a discovery call to start off with. Then you'd have a form of either, you know, a technical test. But then I think it's quite good to have um, as part of that technical test just a 10, 15 minute delivery where they create a presentation just to um, present sort of what what they understand what the business outcomes are for the first 12 months. How would they aim to deliver those outcomes within the first three months, within the first six months, within the first 12 months? And it's putting their own spin on it, like let them be creative. Um, and they might have lots of new ideas to bring to the table. So that can be a really cool interview. I always enjoy that, that's, that form of interview. And I find an interview is more of a, get to know the CEO, you know, the owners of the business and uh, and and make an offer. But I do think from the very beginning, you need to be in regards to offer. I'm not a fan of making an offer at the very end and people going in blind um, is, you know, good. Obviously, well, through an external recruiter, thank God you've already discussed the offer. But, you know, stick with that offer. Don't suddenly, you know, someone comes in at 75K and then you go and offer them 68 <laughs> Um, you know, when someone's just gone through God knows how many interviews, um, that's just not that that leaves someone with a bad taste in their mouth before they've even started. So, um, so yeah, make sure if someone's introduced that certain amount that you're going to stick with that. You're not thinking, well, we'll get them bought in and then we'll save ourselves 5k. Yeah. So, but, um, but yeah, that's the sort of process, like a three-step process, I guess. Um, obviously with technical talent, you need to do some form of technical test with them. And I, I quite like it where it's flexible, where they can actually start to create a bit of a strategy. You can ask them specific questions and and they can show you how they problem solve. Um, but for all of them, they're all going to have different different types of tests, aren't they? Engineers, marketing, sales to, to sort of get an example. Yeah, I think that. Yeah. Three, three stages. Um, I mean, you, you said about eight stages. I, I really hope that if anyone's listening and has an eight stage process that <laughs> they uh, seriously reduce that pretty, pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, for sure. Yeah. Um, OK. And, you know, we were talking a little bit about retention there, weren't we, again, at the beginning. And you were talking about keeping people's fire alight and, um, you know, management and also before, you know, that whole performance review process. But what else can partners do to ensure that they're retaining their, their top talent, really looking after them from a well-being perspective? Because I know that you're you know super passionate about, about that as well. Yeah. So. Wellbeing can be seen as something that's extremely fluffy, whereas actually at the end of the day, wellbeing, it becomes performance. Um, and when people are performing, you're making more money and you're doing things much more quickly. And that's what businesses want. Whereas I think wellbeing has been tarnished with the brush of uh, people just doing meditations and things in the mornings. So, yeah. So in regards to retention, I would say 
um, you know, it's, it's obviously having that progression path. So most people will leave jobs because of they, don't, they have a lack of progression. They feel like they're hitting a ceiling. Um, the other reason why most people leave jobs is because of lack of communication. So it's communicating what direction the business is going in, as well as when the business is struggling. So if you communicate when the business is struggling, everyone's going to do what they can to help the business. Whereas if you don't communicate when it's struggling and you just go quiet, as a, as a management team, um, people are going to fill in the gaps and sometimes that can be more dangerous than actually knowing what's going on. Um, so I say the communication piece, then it's empowering. So empowering your your team so that they are empowering, especially junior individuals, giving them little innovation tasks. So, for example, if you've got a, a struggle of, you know, oh, we've got a load of remote workers and they haven't got to meet each other yet and people are feeling more isolated than ever at home, etc. And that's your problem, whatever. Um, you can find there's a, someone who's quite, junior who actually would be more than happy to run a quiz on friday um you know send out everyone a little bit of money to go and buy themselves a beer and you can do your beer friday with a quiz and and management don't need to run that they don't need to find time to run that that can be run by the juniors and just be a laugh they get to know each other you know and that's going to help retention because then you're going to have stronger relationships within the team and then having those little innovation projects so getting people to team up thinking what what are your blue sky thinking you know as, as a business what what are your outcomes for let's say in three years time or something what what products can they start to think about or create or what ideas or what innovations the business can they work on as a sideline on the side of their their role so for example at Strinsica we've got a well-being team and um, they've all done their amateur FA training um, they've all got their own day jobs you know like third line support and we've got admin all sorts um, and you know head head of ops and but um but they will um get together um once once every month and they'll speak about well-being initiatives the business and then it's a case of testing out testing different things out seeing what works and what doesn't but again they're using different skill sets they don't get to use as part of their day job so it's you know really getting the most out of your staff empowering them uh, another thing so i don't mean to keep going on now um is uh is that it's finding out what people's superpowers are so i know it's a bit corny but sometimes you'll have people who are actually really good at for example video editing or they'll be really good at speak public speaking or they'll be really you know they'll have hobbies that they love in in the background and they're not utilizing them as part of their job um so it's quite useful every now and again is to get everyone together and find out what things they've been really good at in past roles or what things they enjoy doing outside of work that could help the business um and then you can actually start to build a a skills um, analysis across the business, you know, which people are strong in certain areas. Um, and when you do get projects coming up, rather than bringing in an external consultant or something, you might have someone internally actually who would love to take that on. So that's another way of, you know, empowering them, making sure you're utilizing everyone's skills to their, to the best of the business ability, I guess, um, if that makes sense. I love that idea. I really do. Well, first of all, I like the the, the well-being. It's almost like a task force, isn't it? Yeah. You know, we work together as a team and we're doing it because we're passionate about it and we want to you know, help people. And, yeah. and maybe that is the superpower for some of those people. Yeah. But also that matrix is a great idea. That's it. Yeah. Matrix. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and actually, it sounds like a motivation matrix yeah. because those those superpowers, you know, when we get to do something that is plugging into a superpower, the boost of energy, it's just like, yeah, you're, you're plugged in and, and you're you're really happy, engaged, great for well-being. So good for them, but then also for the business, because, yeah, I guess, you know, if, if there are, you know, some projects that they can work on where you don't need to bring in an external, then, you know, that's that's cost saving as well. Yeah. So great. 
Good. Okay. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our uh, of our session. It's gone really, really quickly. I, I knew it would. I've, I've really enjoyed speaking with you. And, um, you. and I'm, yeah, I'm sure our, our listeners have really enjoyed it and got some value. So to say thank you to you, Laura, and um, for everyone out there, do connect with her. Um, that's Laura Tajada. Um, on LinkedIn. I know she'd love to hear from you. And if you want to listen to any other of the Partner Pod episodes, you can find us in the usual place where you download your podcasts. Um, or if, like me, uh, you prefer to watch a video, then you can visit our website, which is www.agilityondemand.com to see all of our episodes. So thank you for listening, and we hope to see you all soon. Bye.